Thanks for listening to the KC Morning Show. Mr. Chairman, and to the Credentials Committee, my name is Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer, and I live at 626 East Lafayette Street, Roosevelt, Mississippi, Sunflower County, the home of Senator James O. Eastland and Senator Stennis. It was the 31st of August in 1962 that 18 of us traveled 26 miles to the county courthouse in Indianola to try to register to become first-class citizens. We was met in Indianola with, by policemen, highway patrolmen, and they only allowed two of us in to take the literacy test at the time. After we had taken this test and started back to Roosevelt, we were held up by the city police and the state highway patrolmen and carried back to Indianola, where the bus driver was charged that day with driving a bus the wrong color. After we paid the fine among us, we continued on to Roosevelt and Reverend Jeff Sonny carried me four miles in the rural area where I had worked as a timekeeper and sharecropper for 18 years. I was met there by my children that told me the plantation owner was angry because I had gone down, tried to register. After they told me, my husband came and said the plantation owner was raising cane because I had tried to register. And before he quit talking, the plantation owner came and said, Fannie Lou, do you know, did Pap tell you what I said? And I said, yes, sir. He said, well, I mean that, that if you don't go down and withdraw your registration, you will have to leave. That then if you go down and withdraw, that you still might have to go because we are not ready for that in Mississippi. And I addressed him and told him that I didn't try to register for you. I tried to register for myself. I had to leave that same night. On the 10th of September, 1962, 16 bullets were fired into the home of Mr. and Mrs. Robert Tucker for me. That same night, two girls were shot in Roosevelt, Mississippi. Also, Mr. Joe McDonald's house was shot in. In June the 9th, 1963, I had attended a voter registration workshop, was returning back to Mississippi. Ten of us was traveling by the Continental Trailway bus. When we got to Winona, Mississippi, which is Montgomery County, four of the people got off to use the washroom. And two of the people, to use the restaurant, two of the people wanted to use the washroom. The four people that had gone in to use the restaurant was ordered out during this time I was on the bus. But when I looked through the window and saw they had rushed out, I got off of the bus to see what had happened. And one of the ladies said it was a state highway patrolman 
and a chief of police out of the South. I got back on the bus, and one of the persons who had used the washroom got back on the bus, too. As soon as I was seated on the bus, I saw when they began to get the five people in a highway patrolman's car. I stepped off of the bus to see what was happening, and somebody screamed from the car that the fire workers was in and said, get that one there. And when I went to get in the car, when the man told me I was under arrest, he kicked me. I was carried to the county jail and put in the booking room. They left some of the people in the booking room and began to place us in cells. I was placed in a cell with a young woman called Miss Vesta Simpson. After I was placed in the cell, I began to hear sounds of licks and screams. I could hear the sounds of licks and horrible screams. And I could hear somebody say, can you say yes, sir, nigger? Can you say yes, sir? And they would say other horrible names. She would say, yes, I can say yes, sir. So well said, she said, I don't know you well enough. They beat her, I don't know how long. And after a while, she began to pray and ask God to have mercy on those people. And it wasn't too long before three white men came to my cell. One of these men was a state highway patrolman. And he asked me where I was from. And I told him, Roosevelt. He said, we're going to check this. And they left my cell, and it wasn't too long before they came back. He said, you are from Roosevelt, all right. And he used the curse word. And he said, we're going to make you wish you was dead. I was carried out of that cell into another cell where they had two Negro prisoners. The state highway patrolman ordered the first Negro to take the blackjack. The first Negro prisoner ordered me, by orders from the state highway patrolman, for me to lay down on a bunk bed on my face. And I laid on my face, the first Negro began to beat. And I was beat by the first Negro until he was exhausted. I was holding my hands behind me at that time on my left side because I suffered from polio when I was six years old. After the first Negro had beat until he was exhausted, the state highway patrolman ordered the second Negro to take the blackjack. The second Negro began to beat and I began to work my feet. And the state highway patrolman ordered the first Negro had beat to sit on my feet, to keep me from working my feet. I began to scream, and one white man got up and began to beat me in my head and tell me to hush. One white man, my dress had worked up high. He walked over and pulled my dress. I pulled my dress down, and he pulled my dress back up. I was in jail when Matthew Evers was murdered. All of this is on account of we want to register to become first-class citizens. And if the Freedom Democratic Party is not seated now, I question America. Is this America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, where we have to sleep 
with our telephones off of the hook because our lives be threatened daily because we want to live as decent human beings in America. Thank you. January 11, 1970, victory belonged to Hank Stram and his Kansas City Chiefs. TV9 News Special Report, close up the flood of 77. From the Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri, it's Milwaukee Bucks against the Kansas City Kings. Now Kansas Cityans must decide what happens next. What is to follow the city's Holy Week riots? I am here at the American Royal World Series of Barbecue. Daryl Motley awaits, and the Kansas City Royals are world champions. <laughs> professor Harvey K., my brother. He is a professor emeritus at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. But he's not the only one getting a radical progressive introduction on today's episode. Oh, no, no, no. Also joining us as we take back America. He is the Associate Professor of Democracy and Justice, where he teaches such things as labor history. Welcome back to the show, John Shelton, everybody. Professor K, Professor Shelton, welcome back to the show, y'all. It's a pleasure to be here. Wonderful to be here. Happy New Year, everybody. Hey, oh, that's right. That's right. And I always think that dates with threes in them have potential for really lucky things everyone should go to the horse races on tuesday <laughs> and then 2023 will bring everything you want in 2023 because why the future is left oh that's beautiful i was gonna ask what our new year's resolutions are john but i feel like we may have just not only found the title of our episode but found our progressive resolutions for the new year the future is left my brother but let's recap if we can let's take a look back at the year that was in 2022 especially on the labor side of things i feel like we got real reason for hope from starbucks to amazon to the independent collective organizing efforts this is a time of radical hope and radical wins so let's recap those wins john shelton you mentioned Starbucks. Let's start there because this is, you know, this is the labor organizing drive that I am most excited about in this country. You know, the reason I'm so excited about it is because it has the capacity to remake the future of labor in this country, right? It, it really does. Number one, it's similar in some ways to some of the big industrial organizing drives in the 30s. If you think about what the nature of the economy was like in the 30s and, you know, some of the big manufacturing outfits, you know, auto and steel that were central to the economy me and then set this sort of model for all these other workers to organize too. Same thing with Starbucks, right? I mean, we've moved into an economy that's very different than the 1930s, very service sector driven, though manufacturing is still important, of course. And, and there's been some, some interesting uh, organizing happening in manufacturing sector as well. But the service sector organizing is really important because it's so central to the economy. But even beyond that, I think it's young people, right? You know, Harvey's not that uh, far removed from teaching at UW Green Bay, and and my students are better than ever, honestly. And that's what you're seeing from these Starbucks workers. So, you know, among the hundreds of stores that have voted to unionize nationally, one of those is in Green Bay. 
And when I found out that the store right on Main Street in Green Bay had voted to unionize and to have Workers United represent them, that was back in October. I immediately went down to the store and kind of said, look, we have your back in Green Bay. We want this to succeed. And I've kept in touch with them. And the sort of main folks who are driving this, they're they're young people. One of them is actually a student at UW-Green Bay who I've gotten to know a little bit. And when they engaged in a in a one-day strike in November, you know, I, I, I was there, I was with them on the picket lines. And, and to hear their stories about why they're organizing is so powerful because what they see is we are not going to have a future if we don't fight for it, right? We have to do something. Howard Schultz is not going to, through the goodness of his heart, actually give us the kind of working conditions that we need, democracy in the workplace, better wages, benefits, all those things, time off, all those things that are necessary to have a good life. And they understand that you can only get that by organizing. So that's where I would start. I mean, the drive nationally has bogged down a little bit. And and this is where, you know, this obviously connects to national politics and the way that our labor laws are broken in this country, and that has to be fixed. And we'll probably look back uh, in these past couple of years politically and, and think about some missed opportunities there. But this isn't going away and these young people are driving this fight and it's really exciting to see. I, I think we we are in a moment that's very exciting. You also mentioned the context, you know, the history of the 30s. You know, this is a very similar type time. And Harvey, you can speak to the rightist reaction. You mentioned Howard Schultz and Starbucks here in Kansas City. We had one of our local Starbucks branches voted to start the process of collective bargaining. And what did they do? Well, they shut it down. So Harvey, you can speak on this as we celebrate the wins. We also got to realize that these reactions to these wins and what they're doing is actually something that's come from the past. And I know that we can take it on here in the future. So maybe explain the context of it. We expected and we've always expected rightist reaction. What I want to refer to is something that you and I, Hartzell, and John and I have been paying it close attention to. Okay, this goes back basically to your Senator Hartzell, the guy who you surely would not have voted for ever, Josh Hawley. Hawley is in the vanguard, politically in the vanguard, of a move in the ranks of the Republican Party to try to, to turn the slow movement of workers from the Democrats over to the Republicans into a flood. Hawley is determined, not only for the sake of his party, which I doubt he could, you know, what's the difference, and his own political career, but literally he wants to make history. We're doing Take Back America as we have for the last, must be almost two years, at least a year and a half, because we know that Hawley wrote a book, The Tyranny of Big Tech, in which he laid out a narrative which could easily have been written, say, by John Shelton or Harvey Kay, a very progressive, indeed radical narrative about labor and capital in the 19th century, workers and citizens versus the robber barons. And by the way, we are living in a new age of, we call it the new Gilded Age, but let's say it's also the age of the robber barons at the same time. So Hawley figured, you know, he could try to capture the narrative. Why? Because the Democrats have so abandoned any sense of the FDR tradition that in many ways, that narrative, that progressive narrative is available. Now, Hawley is not going to try to rally workers to confront capital, but he's going to make every effort, probably, to garner the aura of someone who's more interested in workers than most of those Democrats across the aisle. That's for a start. The other thing about it is inside of the ranks of what we used to call neoconservatism, but they're really just now the conservative intellectual ranks. And John knows this. He's been following closely the work of a fellow named Oren Cass. In fact, he brought Oren Cass to campus to talk about such things. 
as part of the Harvey K. Speaker series and the state of democracy. But here's the thing. He recently had a piece, which I'm going to let John refer to more effectively, but that actually showed sympathy. I, I think it was, John, my, not mistaken, he tweeted it a, something. It was, it was a tweet, yeah, which I've seen shared in, you know, kind of social media circles, like labor circles, without, I think, people realizing that Cass is a conservative, which is pretty interesting. And what yeah. he... What he basically said is something to the effect of, you know, remember this holiday season when you're talking to that free market fundamentalist at your holiday gathering, tell you that, you know, unions are these coercive institutions, that you point them toward corporations and ask them, aren't those also coercive institutions, right? So it's a it's a really interesting move. And Harvey's right. We had Warren out to AW Green Bay, super sharp guy, right? And, you know, he started this think tank called the American Compass. And they're working with folks like Hawley, I think, but also people like Marco Rubio from Florida. Marco Rubio, right. And this group of senators, you know, I think um, JD Vance is sort of also kind of, you know, on this track too, you know, to kind of take this like pro worker mantle, right? So it was really interesting because Marco Rubio was one of the first senators to speak out against the deal that was forced on rail workers who are going to get no paid time off, right? To force this on them. And Rubio put out a press release almost immediately condemning it and saying, you know, that the workers should be allowed to sort of work this out on their own and go on strike if they needed to. For Democrats, this is very dangerous stuff because, you know, it allows Republicans to take that mantle. You know, it's it's false concern, I think. Cass probably actually genuinely is concerned about working class livelihoods. I don't think there's any scenario where somebody like Josh Hawley is actually concerned about working class livelihoods, but they're using this. What the Biden administration did in this rail strike was utterly catastrophic, right? And I, and I don't think enough people have mentioned that because it's opened this lane even further, right? And it's it's dangerous. I should have added before that Hawley, in the wake of that, had two pieces that he produced, one in the Washington Post, in which he actually called for a new Republican Party. So he wasn't breaking with the party, but he was literally throwing down the gauntlet to the Republican Party leadership, which, by the way, is exactly what Ronald Reagan did back in the 70s. That's Hawley's model, not Trump, Ronald Reagan. And then he did a piece, and what I believe is a sort of conservative religious magazine with a sizable following in which he really did emphasize the imperative of Republicans attending to the needs of working people. Now, again, I don't know what's in the heart of Josh Hawley other than to judge him by his actions, okay? And I don't mean the actions in which he's trying to take advantage of a moment. I mean the actions in which he literally has been a leader of the right wing and and a foremost figure outside of but engaged in the January 6th insurrection. So when you put this together, if you've got political voices in the Republican Party and then these public intellectuals on the right, this could be the beginning. Now, don't forget, I said the future is left. I don't mean the next two years, by the way, necessarily. The next two years is going to be a return to obstructionism on a grand scale. We've lost the House. We've held the Senate. That is, the Democrats have. And we know, look, really, it's the case that It's still neoliberalism that prevails in the Democratic Party. They crushed progressives. They corralled progressives. They did not secure the things they promised. We still don't have a federal $15 an hour minimum wage. I I could go on and on and on. The point is that this is a very ripe time for what these right-wing senators like Hawley or Rubio and the likes of Orrin Cass, and these are very, very smart people. These are not yo-yos. And we know there's a lot of money over there on the right that would love to fund that initiative. So I can tell you, I don't know how the Democrats are going to resist 
Look, the only way they can do it, and I, we don't need to get into it right now, we've talked about it before, is for the Democrats to go all out, let, let the conservatives do what they want, but have the Progressive Caucus embrace the proposition of an economic bill of rights and go all out to support workers who are on strike in Alabama, who are organizing across the country. And we can go back, John, I think you made such a great point, and I don't think enough folks are talking about this. You're right. When the Biden administration comes in and says that this is going to be the most pro-union president since FDR, you got to at least kind of show up when it's game time. It's like the party, the establishment Democratic Party, they feel like the future, like we're saying the future is left. They think the future is some fictional West Wing liberal, I don't know, from 1997. Here's the problem, right? And this goes back to what, you know, Harvey was saying. The Democratic Party, right? And when I say this, I don't mean it as a monolithic entity, right? I mean the kind of neoliberal center of the Democratic Party. And when my book comes out, Hartzell will talk about this and I can go through it. Say the title now and we'll get used sure. to saying it. Yeah, let's do it. The title is The Education Myth, How Human Capital Trumped Social Democracy. And it's out in March and, you know, kind of tells the story of how the Democratic Party got to this place. And as the Democratic Party has moved to embrace neoliberalism, one of the things that it's done is it's sort of constantly taken labor for granted. It's taken organized labor for granted and said, those people will always be there because there's not an alternative that they can go to. They're not going to start a third party. Maybe some of their members will vote Republican, but you know their leadership will generally be you know sort of solid and whip as many votes as they can. And hopefully that'll be enough to win elections. The problem is now there's a lane in the Republican party. There's an alternative, right? And that lane was blown open by Trump. Trump is very complicated, but there's a part of the sort of Trump phenomenon in which you had some disaffected working people saying, well, you know, the Democrats haven't done very much for me, so let's try something else. I saw that when I was knocking on doors for Hillary Clinton in 2016. I was knocking labor turf and people were basically saying, I'm not voting for another Clinton because they remembered NAFTA. So that's the problem, right? And then you come to the Biden administration and, you know, Harvey talked about the $15 minimum wage, but I would also say, you know, that one of the biggest missed opportunities of this administration was the PRO Act. The PRO Act not only would have been a game changer for all those workers organizing, all the stuff that Starbucks is doing right now, legally doing, right, to stop workers, workers who have voted in their union from being able to, to bargain for a contract, they're giving raises to workers who are at non-union stores and not to the workers who are in union stores. You're not supposed to be able to do that, but labor law is broken. Something like the PRO Act would change that, right? And it would end things like right to work laws in the 30 states or wherever where those things exist. This would be a, a game changer, not just for workers, but what's so short-sighted in my view, the, the lack of support the Biden administration put into overcoming a filibuster there. The thing that made that so disastrous is that that would have been good for the Democratic Party long-term to reinvigorate labor. If you think about what happened in this country, and I'm sure Harvey has talked about this on the show a lot with American politics from the 1930s through the 1960s, the shift that happened in the American politics that put Democrats really at the center, keeping control of Congress for decades and, and being able to really set an agenda, that came from having a strong labor movement, from having 30% of workers in unions, you know, who could then make sure to vote for candidates that supported labor, right? And that's the missed opportunity. And, and I don't think enough people in the Biden administration truly got that. In the wake of that conversation, I think it's important to say that we can talk all we'd like, and I hope we're right about the, the future is left. But let's also remember, in light of what John was saying, which is important, there will be no left without a dynamic, vibrant, organizing labor movement. 
Well, let's piggyback off of that. John, you have talked to the folks on the ground. You've seen the wins. You've also heard about probably some of the, the losses. What's working? What are you hearing that's working? What are you hearing that's not working? I think what we are all trying to do right this time in a post-Occupy world, in a pandemic world, in all these new contexts, we all, I think, are trying to get right the bottom-up approach. We want to make sure this is workers-driven, but we also are trying to do it in new ways. So what are you hearing as we're trying to find these new ways? I think the biggest thing is I've heard this from, you know, Starbucks workers. I am the president of our faculty and staff union at UW Green Bay. And I also serve as vice president of higher ed for American Federation of Teachers, Wisconsin. So, you know, I've been working with a lot of the other university campuses and their locals to organize about various things, you know, over the past years, whether that was, you know, at UW Oshkosh, where the administration was trying to outsource all their custodial services and, and cost a lot of good jobs, or they just closed a, a two-year campus, which Harvey knows about at Richland Center. And I'm working with some of the faculty and staff there to organize, to effectively kind of navigate that in a situation that's going to protect everybody's livelihoods. And, you know, I think the thing that works with any kind of really any any kind of organizing, but especially with workers, what has to happen is that efforts have to be sustained. So workers have to think about doing this over the long term and they have to do it in a way where they have a theory of power, right? And so a theory of like how things work. And typically that means, you know, you have a couple of people who are really sort of driving that, but also making connections with, you know, other workers, right? So it's like the workers at the Starbucks and Green Bay, they're talking to other workers who have organized in other parts of Wisconsin hearing what works from Workers United organizers elsewhere in the country, bringing in those practices, but at the same time, they're educating. So if you have two or three workers who are kind of driving things, those workers are in the process of doing the work. They're actually educating all the other workers about a theory of power, right? To inoculate them against the kind of, um, can I curse on here or no? Cuss away, brother. Okay. So to inoculate them against the kind of bullshit that they've heard from the Starbucks corporation, you know, about how they're, I think they call them partners, right? And they're, you know, all these like Orwellian terms that try to separate them from the real level of exploitation that's happening in their day-to-day -day lives. It's the same thing we deal with in the university setting, right? Like we have to work with faculty and staff to get them to see like, you're just as much a worker as anybody else. Even if you think this veneer of academia insulates you from that, you're being squeezed just as much as everybody else's and you have to understand how this power dynamic works. Those are the unions that are successful. I mean, one of the unions that I think is a union that everybody should be paying attention to in this country is the Chicago Teachers Union. The kind of work they've done to have deep, sustained organizing around not just making working conditions better for teachers, but understanding how things have gotten to the point in the city of Chicago so that disproportionately black and brown students don't have safe streets and don't have good housing and you know don't have enough food to eat and don't have health care. And weaving those things actually into their demands and contract negotiations. And so they have a robust theory of power and it doesn't just happen overnight, right? There's been an education project and those are the things that have to happen. It can't just be a one-off kind of thing. And, and I think those are the workers that you see being successful. When any group of workers thinks about going on strike, that is something that takes weeks, months to prepare for, to organize, to educate people. And that's what we kind of have to strap in for long-term.
I didn't plan this question, but I'm hearing the passion in your voice. I'm even more excited now to check out the book because as you're studying this, you've seen the tactics, the reactions, how capital has just co-opted every bit of our life as some sort of commodity that can be sold. And you're seeing this, you're seeing maybe even the cyclical nature of it, but I hear the fire and I hear the passion and I hear you talk about this moment that we're gonna make a movement and you believe it because you feel like these times are are uniquely ripe. And I'm sure you're going to get into this in the book, but if you can give us a little teaser, why are you so uniquely fired up for this moment? Sure. And thanks for the question and for humoring this question. Look, here's the thing. Our politics, and this is really what the book is about at the core, our politics in the past 40 or 50 years have been hemmed in by a set of ideas. A set of ideas that if you want to be successful, what you do is you go out and you position yourself as best as you can in the labor market. And the way you do that is by getting the kind of training that an employer wants, going into debt for an education. Harvey and I are both educators. We're pro-education you know, across the board. But this idea that education is this sort of fantastical thing you know, what I call the education myth, that just by bettering yourself as an individual can help you to overcome all of the structural problems that exist, all of the inequalities, right, that exist in our society. It's a myth. And what it's done is it's constricted the political possibilities we have. And so you go back to the time that Harvey is, you know, one of the preeminent experts in this country on the New Deal and all the things that made the promise of FDR in that era so important. It was about the alternatives, right? It was about things like having people very serious fighting for things like a jobs guarantee, right? And those things have been lost in the last 40 or 50 years because of the very narrow trajectory that the Democratic Party, but the Republican Party too, up until the past five or six years has taken. And the last decade, this is what I talk about in the last chapter of the book, whether it's the sort of Bernie Sanders phenomenon or the Trump phenomenon, for better or worse, has blown the doors off that idea, right? Like what young people especially, but all working people in this country really want is economic security and not something thing that they have to scrap and claw and climb some fictitious ladder to get access to. It's something that more and more people are understanding. This is something every single person deserves. The question is, are we going to fight for it on the left and have, you know, the kind of alternative that is, you know, going to allow people to come together and build solidarity and realize that? Or are we going to have this sort of like crocodile tears version on the right that sets us apart from each other and that leads to some really, really problematic, really dangerous alternatives? So I'm fired up because this is the fight of our lives, right? And I'm glad to be in this moment. And and frankly, I'm glad to see so many young people fighting for this. Maybe I'm, you know, as Gramsci would say, just have optimism of the will, but I refuse to be pessimistic about it. I want to be optimistic about it because I see the energy. I hear the fire in Brother Shelton's voice, Professor K. And coming into today's episode, we were going to talk about some words that are inspiring some passionate, radical feelings within us. Here we are in 2023. Professor K, do you have said words? Well, I do indeed. Okay. I probably have more words than we have time for. Okay. (laughs) I'm going to start by saying, and I think everyone recalls, we've mentioned a number of times, my first major work in American history, in some fashion, a kind of pamphleteering history, was Thomas Paine and the Promise of America, which came out back in 2005. Well, Thomas Paine was the original firebrand, you might say, of the revolution. It was long as we're talking fire. And we should understand that when he wrote the pamphlet Common Sense, which was really the torch that set the flames going, he didn't do it by criticizing Americans and American possibilities. He did it by pointing a finger at the enemy 
and making it very clear that America had a promise. Okay, so I want to read what I think are the key words early in the pamphlet, and then I'm going to follow up with one, a one-liner, two-liner that he closes the pamphlet with. He says, the sun never shined on a cause of greater worth. Tis not the affair of a city, a county, a province, or a kingdom, but of a continent, of at least one-eighth part of the habitable globe, habitable globe. Tis not the concern of a day, a year, or an age. Posterity are virtually involved in the contest and will be more or less affected, even to the end of time, by the proceedings now. Now is the seed of continental union, faith, and honor. Listening to John, one can imagine it's not just a fight for our lives, it's the fight for those whose lives will follow us as Americans. The other thing I want to read, what I think is the most radical, the most radical set of radical words in modern history. And there are others that will follow that are arguably equally radical, but this is the first set of radical words. By the way, the ones that will follow would be something like Karl Marx's The History of All Hitherto Existing Societies, The History of Class Struggle, something like that, okay? But this is pain in 1776. We have it in our power to begin the world over again. A situation similar to the present hath not happened since the days of Noah until now. The birthday of a new world is at hand, and he goes on from there. The key thing is that very idea, we have it in our power to begin the world over again, is in one sense utterly false. We live in a world that's already underway. But it is also utterly true. History is not made by the divine or by nature or animal instincts. It's made by human beings who are socially engaged with each other, who if they so organize to make it happen, can turn the world upside down, as some would say, start the world over again, as Payne said. I've got others, but I think that's the place to start and to remember that for the upcoming year, because in the upcoming year, we're bound to hear these are the times that chime in souls. But let's not forget, let's not forget those words that I just read. I'll go next so that we can have our guest be last. I think that's the that's the hospitable thing to do, Professor K. Yeah, and we are gracious hosts on this show, Professor K. Yes, we are. <laughs> I can't get this quote out of my head. And in Kansas City in 23, we've got a city council that's going to be decided. We have a mayoral election. We've got a new airport. We've got an NFL draft, a World Cup in 2026. We also have an unhoused crisis. We have folks who don't know how they're going to eat and how they're going to make sure their kids are fed that day. This is a moment that Kansas City is in. So these were the radical words of Robert H. Jackson. He told it to the National Lawyers Guild in 1938. In fact, Professor Kay, I think you were the one who introduced this to me. Thank you, my brother. This is what Robert Jackson said. He said, we too are founders. We too are makers of a nation. We too are called upon to write, to defend, and to make new bills of rights. So with that, Professor Shelton, John Shelton, radical words that are getting you fired up in this new year. What you got, my brother? Yeah, so I don't know how many of your listeners know who Fannie Lou Hamer is, but Fannie Lou Hamer was a civil rights activist, an African-American woman in Mississippi. Uh, Mississippi is the state that I grew up in. I consider Wisconsin my home state now, but Mississippi is where I I grew up. And I've just been reading this book um, by Keisha Blaine. It's a biography of Fannie Lou Hamer. It's called Until I Am Free, Fannie Lou Hamer's Enduring Message to America. It's a great biography. It's short and it's it's really not a, we're going to take you through the whole timeline of her life. It's more, these are the sort of different aspects of her thought. 
And it's just a tremendous book. Hamer became a civil rights activist. She became an activist when the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee was formed in the South during some of the voting drives in the Delta, the Mississippi Delta, which had some of the worst racism in the country. And she became an activist relatively late in life. I mean, she was in her 40s, actually, when she started getting involved in activism, um, which I'm thinking about now being in my 40s and you know, kind of getting started. And you know, there was this sort of famous moment in 1964 where she and a group of activists went to Atlantic City, where the Democratic Convention was, to force the Democratic Convention to seat integration delegates, right? To not just seat white supremacists. So it was this big moment. They ultimately weren't successful in part because Johnson, you know, kind of pushed to not allow them because he didn't want to have it to cause problems with the election of 1964. But sort of out of that, Hamer becomes this really, really important activist. And after reading the book, I've been going back and reading some of her speeches. This spoke to me a little bit because it was a speech she gave in Wisconsin at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 1971. There's some really sort of famous words of hers there. And, you know, she spends a lot of the speech, she did a lot of sort of talking about her own personal testimony, you know, what it was like growing up in the South, the exploitation she and her family faced as sharecroppers, the time she was beaten by white supremacist law enforcement in the South to the point where she had debilitating injuries, right? So she spends some of the speech talking about this, but then she, at a certain point, talks about what it is that she's trying to do, right? And I picture her saying this to an audience of mostly, you know, college students in the early 70s. And she says, we plan to make this a better place, talking about Mississippi in the South, for all the citizens, both black, red, whites, and browns, and we want you to understand this. So she's talking to the students here, probably. I never been hung up in all of my work and just fighting for the black. I've never been hung up in that because I know that a lot of black people have given their lives. But I also know it was people like Andy Goodman, Michael Schwerner, and James Cheney that gave their lives in the state of Mississippi so that all of us would have a better chance. And when they died there, they didn't just die for me, but they died for you because your freedom is shackled in chains to mine. And until I am free, you are not free either. And you know, to me, that the thing that's so moving about those words and what we need to remember in this new year is that nothing is more important than understanding how all of our fates are linked together, right? And to go back to the pain quote that Harvey just mentioned, right? That's what he was really saying, right? Is like, we can build a society where we do actually see ourselves linked together. That's what democracy really is. And that's what we have to do. When you think about somebody like Hamer, who had every right to basically be like, no, this is about the kind of trauma that I've faced. This is about the unfair conditions that I've faced. And instead pushes outward to build solidarity among all Americans. Whew, boy, that's truly what the promise of this country is about. Not enough people know who Fannie Lou Hamer is. They should. And she's got words as an American that we should all be living by. Well, you, my friend, also have some words that folks should be living by. John Shelton, Professor John Shelton, can you tell these folks where they can find you on the internet and plug the title of the book so everybody can put it in their pre-ordered carts right now? Yeah. Until Elon Musk does whatever it is that he's finally going to do to Twitter, I'm at Prof Underbar Shelton on the Twitters. And you can purchase my book. It'll be out in March, The Education Myth, How Human Capital Trumps Social Democracy. It's available for pre-order right now at your favorite monopolistic online bookseller uh, that should be nationalized. You can order that now. <laughs> and Professor Harvey K., where can folks find you on the Twitter box? At Harvey J.K., H-A-R-V-E-Y, initial J, K-A-Y-E. 
Any updates on the new edition of the British Marxist Historians, Professor K? Well, I've been doing a lot of sort of YouTube and interview kind of shows. And the other thing is, I have to say, it's very nice when I hear from people who've just heard one of those podcasts or just picked up and started reading the book. It's just great. And, you know, when they follow me on Twitter, I get to thank them and give them a hug through the internets. I ask this to all my guests on the KC Morning Show. I say, is it a good day to be a Kansasidian? Let's broaden this question. Professor K, you first, and then John, you can close this. Is it, my friends, my comrades, it is a good day to be a radical progressive in this country? Tell me why. Well, I'm going to quote John quoting Gramsci, optimism of the will. Right now, those kids, I call them kids because I'm old enough to do that, organizing in Starbucks, organizing in various places at Amazon. And I do want to make it clear, if people pay attention, there are two other things that they should note. One, nurses are organizing around the country. One of our favorite fabulous students is an organizer with the National Nurses Union. And she is right now batting a thousand in her organizing efforts. But I also want to say the biggest airline around, Delta Airlines, the flight attendants are organizing. If you fly Delta, See if you can get a hold of the button or a pin. Show your solidarity with the Delta airline flight attendants. Especially now. Especially now. Why is it a good day to be a progressive? Because we're Americans. You know, that's not something that I take for granted when the new year rolls around. You know, in spite of the fact that we do have it in our power to make the world over again, we don't have to do it from scratch because we have heroes, people that have put their lives on the line to make this country fulfill the promise of American history, whether that's Payne, whether that's Frederick Douglass, whether that's Eugene Debs, whether that's teacher union activist Margaret Haley, whether that's FDR and Walter Ruther, or whether it's Martin Luther King or Fannie Lou Hamer, we're standing on their shoulders. And we have a deep responsibility to fulfill the things they fought for. And that's what I take with me every day. And, um, you know, that's why it's a good day to be a, a progressive in this country moving forward. Yeah. And I want to add, Hartzell and I have promised an A. Philip Randolph episode or yeah. more. How could I forget Many, that? We would never even do that unless we had our comrade John join us for those occasions. So my New Year's resolution for Take Back America is we are going to bring A. Philip Randolph to Kansas City by way of the Kansas City Morning Show, Hartzell john and harvey i promise that's my resolution i love it right after the packers win the super bowl all right and you know let's go ahead and cut the call now my comrades it's been great i love you both thank you for this this has been truly one of my favorite episodes and yes i love that resolution harvey k we're gonna have to run this back john you want to come back on the show talk a little a philip randolph absolutely can't wait let's do it now i've been happy lately thinking about the good things to come and I believe it could be Something good has begun Oh, I've been smiling lately Dreaming about the world at one And I believe it could be Someday it's going to come Cause out on the edge of darkness There rides a peace train Oh, peace train, take this country Come take me home again about the good things to come and i believe it could be something good has begun